Dear Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have uh, inspired authors throughout history to record not only the events, but your interpretation of those events. We have your divine commentary on history, past, present, and future. And we ask for understanding and wisdom as we handle the text so that we can come to an understanding of what the author originally intended for the text to mean. Uh, we thank you so much for the gift of your Holy Spirit, which binds us together in the body of Christ. And we thank you all the more for the blood of Christ, which rescues us from the evil kingdom of sin and uh, presents us into the kingdom of light. We thank you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. <clears throat> we finished chapter 9 this morning, which means we just have two chapters left in Genesis 1 through 11. This is our fifth series in Genesis, answering the question, has God forgotten us? And absolutely, he has not forgotten us. As we have seen, he takes care of sin. But this morning, we look at a passage where we see why sin continues today. Man did not lose his sin nature in the flood, but rather the cancer of sin that had grown so terribly before the flood was cut out. The world for a time went into remission, but it was a very short time, and the cancer began to grow again. I wasn't able to split the passages perfectly into three this morning, so I cheated. We have a prologue and an epilogue, and we have two main sections, the perfidy of Ham, which once again I will have to provide a definition for, and the prophecy of Noah. Our main point before we get started is that sin is a cancer that needs a cure. The flood put the world into remission, but it was brief. Man still remained on the earth, and man still retained his sin nature. So sin will fester. It will need to be taken care of in the future. As we ponder that, we want to remember that God has promised that he will not destroy the earth again until the very end. So we have a promise that we will be living together with sin until God puts a full stop to sin. Now, this little story of Noah and his three sons kind of seems to dangle oddly at the end of this flood narrative. And there's lots of uh, perhaps moralistic principles that you could draw out of it, uh, but I don't think that's the point. And as I went through and researched this more, I was thoroughly impressed with Moses' ability to write I really enjoy short fiction, and one thing about short fiction is you have to be concise and you have to rely on uh, what the reader already knows. And Moses does that, and he purposefully, it seems, uses language that connects this fall after the flood with the original fall, the fall of Adam. So we have here a couple examples. Adam and Noah were both the universal ancestors. These are the only two men which every single person in all of human history can trace their lineage back to. Both tended gardens after a creation. With Adam, it was the creation. With Noah, it was the recreation, this present world that we are living in. 
both stumbled over fruit. One was specifically told not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Noah ate fermented fruit, which caused him to become drunk. Both are left naked and ashamed by their sin. Both are provided a covering by someone else. Both are adversely affected by another's sinful looking. If you remember what uh, started Eve's sin was that she, rather than listening to God's word, saw that the fruit was good for food and made a decision based on that. And finally, both are blessed and cursed in their sons. Some have pointed out that Moses seems to use vague language, and so they use that as an opportunity to postulate on all the wild things that could be actually going on here, besides actually just focusing on the text and what it says. It seems that Moses is not being vague to conceal or hide what's going on or to be uh, particularly coy. He says things plainly, as we will see as we look at other texts that he has written in Genesis, where he just says plainly what other people are trying to put into this text but does not exist in this text. Moses is an excellent author. He is an excellent writer, and he is not afraid to say exactly what's going on, no matter how gross or disgusting it may be. And so we don't want to add in things that are gross and disgusting into this text beyond what is already there. But we do start with our prologue here, that from this point came all the peoples and all the nations that populate the earth today. This has a direct effect on us because we all can trace our lineage back to Noah, and we can all can trace our lineage back to at least one of Noah's sons. Most of us could probably trace our lineage back to a few of Noah's sons. So it says that the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Hem, and Japheth. These were the only three sons of Noah, the only ones that came off the ark, and he did not have any afterwards. And this forms what is called an inclusio. These are bookends. These sons got on the ark. Now we get confirmation that these were indeed the sons that came off the ark. They are listed as Shem, Hem, and Japheth, but these are not the order in which they were born. Shem is indeed the oldest, as we see from Genesis 10:21, to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth. So Japheth is younger than Shem, and in Genesis 9:24 we see Ham is the youngest of all of them. So some wonder why they are written in this order, and whenever we see them presented elsewhere in Scripture, they are generally presented in this order as well. Shem is the oldest, but he's also the one with the birthright. He is the one through whom the seed line promise will lead to the Messiah. Despite the fact that he is, or regardless of the fact that he is the oldest, he is the most important. Ham is drawn forward, but not placed at the beginning, because this text has primarily to do with him. This sin that we see that causes the fall of man after the flood was initiated by Ham. And Japheth, as important as he may be, is not quite as important as the other two brothers in this text. 
So he gets to dangle at the end, even though he's the middle brother. The uh, middle child is often forgotten, as I can attest to. <laughs> it's a joke, Susanna. <laughs> I'm the golden child. Yeah. <laughs> but it also has this odd little phrase hanging on to the end that seems to serve no purpose quite yet. It says, Ham was the father of Canaan. We might ask, why does that matter? Well, Moses is foreshadowing the events to come. It's going to be important in a moment why Ham is the father of Canaan. And so we have this grandson of Noah introduced into the text. Canaan was the youngest of Ham's sons as well. Cush was the oldest, Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, was the second. Put is the third, and Canaan the fourth. This happened some time after they got off the ark. Ham, the youngest son, who was over 100 when they got off the ark, or about 100 when they got off the ark, had time to have four sons after the flood. It is at least presumable from the text that Canaan was born at this time. So we can assume there were at least a few years, if not a few decades, between the exit from the ark and this event. We see that these were the three sons of Noah. There is not room in the text for more sons of Noah. And it was from these three and no others that all of the earth was populated. This is a drastic narrowing of the genetics that Adam and Eve were given. Think of all of the hundreds of children that they may have had and the hundreds of children that they may have had, thousands of lines of ancestry gone with the flood. Only three remained, 10 generations from Adam. This is a genetic bottleneck. And from it, we are going to not surprisingly see that lifespans start to deteriorate. They don't have as much genetic code to borrow from, and the health of the human body begins to decline. The effects of the, uh, of the fall of man was that he began to die his genetic code began to mutate, and from those mutations came death. And so that death is here, uh, here becomes faster and more pronounced, as we will see with the, uh, with the lines of Noah's sons. All right, now we take a look at the perfidy of Ham. I had never heard of this word before, so I looked it up. This is the quality or state of being disloyal, faithless, or treacherous, an act or an instance of disloyalty. And this is exactly what is going on here. That is Ham's sin. He is seeking to gain the upper hand over his father. He sees his father the federal head of the entire human race, this moral stalwart, of humanity. This man who has never spoken a word yet in our text, and yet he stands above the rest of humanity in that God chose to save him instead of anyone else on the earth before because he walked with God. God saw him and had favor on him, and it appears that Ham is jealous of his father's position. 
And he takes the opportunity, seeing his dad's sin, rather than to cover his father's sin, to exacerbate his father's sin, to spread his father's sin. We take note that Noah began to farm after he got off the ark. He immediately entered into labor. This was one of our divine institutions. This is something good for man. Man was designed to work. He planted a vineyard. He was producing. And then he drank of the wine, and that wasn't an issue in itself, but he drank so much that he became drunk. Now, there are some theories that he would not have known what wine was, that something in the new conditions of this new world caused wine to begin to ferment. This is likely not the case since Jesus in Matthew 24 tells us that one of the things that they were doing before the flood was eating and drinking and celebrating. This most likely is speaking of alcoholic beverages. And so they had those before the flood. Noah would have known the cause or the consequences of drinking too much, and yet he did so anyways. We see in Proverbs 31, verse 6, that wine is sometimes used to dull the effects of the curse. This doesn't make it a good purpose for this wine. In fact, we see it's a bad purpose for that wine. But we see it says here in Proverbs 31, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. This is the effect of wine when taken to the extent of drunkenness. Oops. But we see in Psalm 104 that wine in itself is not bad. In fact, Jesus often drank wine in the Gospels. Here in Psalm 104, verse 14, he causes the grass to grow. This is speaking of God. For the cattle and vegetation, for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine, which makes his heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food, which sustains man's heart. Wine is a gift from God, but like all other gifts, we don't take in excess. All things can be had to excess, and then they become bad, even the gifts and blessings of God. But I think part of the issue at hand here is Noah does stand over all of humanity as a king. Noah is God's chosen vessel to rule over humanity. And this is not the activity that a king should be involved in. It says in Proverbs 31, verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed. That was the issue with Adam and Eve. They forgot the words of God and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Noah had too much responsibility placed on him to treat that responsibility so frivolously. And yet he did, and so we see Noah falling into sin. Now, I think this was an important event for Moses to record for multiple reasons, one being that so far we have seen no sins in Noah's life. He has not committed a single sin. We might begin to look at him as some sort of Messiah figure, similar to the prophecy of Lamech, 
that he would bring rest to the world. We might start to wonder, did the Messiah already come in Noah? He seems to be perfect. Well, here we get clarity on that fact that he is no Messiah. He himself is a sinner in need of a savior. And the result of his drunkenness is he uncovers himself inside the tent. Now keep that in mind. It is important that this is a reflexive verb. He does this to himself. He is not uncovered by someone else. When Ham enters into the tent and sees him there, Noah is already uncovered. But he does so in his tent. This is not public nudity. He was in the privacy of his own home, but unfortunately he was in a drunken stupor. And then in walks Ham, the youngest of his sons, the one with a bent towards rebellion. Ham, the father of Canaan, once again, adding foreshadowing into the text. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, this doesn't seem like a sin, does it? We get from the context that this was sinful, and this is one of those verses where they say Moses is being purposefully coy here. He's purposefully not saying it because it's just so bad. This word saw, some people say that this probably means more than just seeing, and it does. It does mean looking at, but it does not mean sexual activity. They will say that this is a, an idiom used later on in Leviticus 18, and it is not an idiom used later on in Leviticus 18. It is a different idiom used there in a similar structure. Leviticus 18 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. It's the wrong verb. To see someone's nakedness is not to uncover someone's nakedness. Noah uncovered himself. Now, in Leviticus 18, this is used as an idiom for sexual activity. But Moses is also not reluctant to state specifically what happens in a less than uh, appropriate context. In Genesis 35, for example, came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Moses isn't afraid to say the quiet stuff out loud. Or how about this one, Genesis 10.32? Nope, this is 19.32. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him. This is the incest of Lot and his two daughters. Let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Now some commentators say that what's happening here between Noah and Ham is the same thing as happened between Reuben and his father's concubine, or Lot and his two daughters. But the text is completely different. This is not what happened between Ham and Noah. We look at this through 
our sense of morality and say, well, what the text says isn't so bad. We have to find a sin in here rather than agreeing with God that what happened was a sin. The classical Jewish interpretation of this text, I believe, is wrong. This comes from Sanhedrin 70 from the Babylonian Talmud. It says, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. With respect to the last verse, Rabbi and Samuel differ, one maintaining that he castrated him, castrated his father, whilst the other says that he sexually abused him. He who maintains that he castrated him reasons thus, since he cursed him by the fourth son, he must have injured him with respect to a fourth son. Remember, Noah only had three sons. The rabbinic explanation for why he only had three sons was because Ham castrated him before he could have a fourth. And so they say that this is why uh, Ham was cursed not in his own self, but in his fourth son, Canaan. Now the Sanhedrin continues and comments, now on that, on the view that he emasculated him, it is right that he cursed him by his fourth, uh, that son, not sin. So in the Talmud, where it stands completed, the final author agreed with this interpretation, that Noah was castrated by Ham. This is nowhere in the text, not even hinted to or alluded to. This is called eisegesis. This is reading into a text something that is not there. We don't want to practice this. Rather, we want to agree with God that what he calls sin is indeed sin. We want to look at the activities, not only of Ham, but the reaction of his brothers. What did they do different? What did they do that was not a sin? So Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he went out and he told his brothers outside. We'll see from their reaction that rather than going and spreading this news around, they took care of the issue. They went and covered their father. They cared for his dignity. They cared for the righteousness of this man that God saw in him. Now, I think once again, Moses is not being vague, but he is using language to draw to our attention the similarities between this and the fall of Adam. Specifically, in Adam's son, Cain. God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And then what did Cain do? He went and told his brother. He went and told his brother what God had told him about his sinfulness, but he did not agree with God about his sinfulness. In fact, he let sin master him. And in this conversation with his brother, he rose up and killed Abel. The language is paralleled here, not because Moses is being vague, but because he wants us to remember the first fall, because that's what's happening again. However, this time it's not murder that is becoming the, the beginning sin that is going to spread throughout all the generations. It is lasciviousness. 
It is the lack of care for the dignity, not of life, but of sexuality. We'll see this spread throughout the Canaanite tribes. This is going to be a particular issue for the Jewish nation that is entering into the land of Canaan. So just like from Cain, murderers were born, so just as through Ham, the sexually lascivious will be born. Sodom and Gomorrah comes from Ham's line. The Canaanites in their uh, rituals all come from Ham's line. This was the point of inception for that particular sin in this new civilization. And so how do we want to judge Ham? We look at God's word to judge Ham. What exactly was Ham's error? Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among his brothers. This is what Ham is doing. He is acting in rebellion. Rather than obeying the authority structure that God has imposed on humanity, he is seeking to subvert God's king, Noah. He is gaining the upper hand in exposing Noah's sin to his brothers. And so how do Ham's brothers react? But Shem and Japheth took a garment. They laid it upon their shoulders. They covered the nakedness of their father, and they did not see their father's nakedness. They took efforts to help Noah in his sin, to lift him up rather than to put him down. They respected their father. They respected the king, the federal head of humanity the one that God put over them. They sought to protect his dignity and so protected God's holiness and righteousness. This does have a parallel to Genesis 3.21, where the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is because in their shame, they saw that they were naked. After their sin, their nakedness had become shame to them a representation of their sin. They needed a covering. Noah laying exposed in his tent. His shame was exposed and he needed a covering. Japheth and Shem acted in faith, knowing that Noah's sin needed to be covered. They followed this principle we see later in the church. James 5, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We're to care for one another. We might ask, are we our brother's keeper? Japheth and Shem answer this in the affirmative. They're not only their brother's keeper, they're their father's keeper. They are to protect one another. 
not seek to expose one another. Proverbs 17, a servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance among brothers. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. The Lord was testing Ham's heart here, and Ham was failing the test. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to destructive, to a destructive tongue. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejects or who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. This is what Ham's doing. Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of the son is his or is their father's. I don't think it's any mistake that the author of Proverbs, Solomon, put this in here. I don't know that he was specifically thinking of Noah and his sons, but this is a principle that stands the test of time. Ham was gain-seeking on his father, trying to make him a mockery. Rather than being the crown of his father's glory, he tried to steal that crown to put him down. And in so doing, he sinned against God. But his two brothers made careful effort not to revel in their father's sin. They walked backwards. They kept their faces turned away. They made sure, made sure that they would not transgress in the same way Ham had done. They upheld the dignity of their father. Alan Ross explains this, that to the ancients, even seeing one's father naked was a breach of family ethic. The sanctity of the family was destroyed and the strength of the father was made a mockery. Ham's disposition toward moral abandon thus bore fruit in the immoral acts of his descendants, the Canaanites. And so that brings us to this great prophecy of Noah. The first time we see Noah speak, in fact, the only time we see Noah speak, is to utter a curse against his grandson Canaan for the acts of Ham. In that curse, there are also blessings for his brothers. And once again, we have a parallel. Just as after the fall, God cursed the serpent and handed down judgments on the woman and the man. So there is going to be a curse here on Canaan and hidden in the midst of these curses is going to be a promise that the God of Shem was still concerned with his people, still concerned with his seed line. It parallels that promise we get back in Genesis 3.15, that there would be one who would come to conquer the serpent, and that would come through Shem. But we start by looking at the curse on Canaan. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. He probably did not know this just in the act of waking up, but it would not take him very long to discover what had happened the night before. This language also parallels Genesis 4 and Genesis 3. 
The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he, God, said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Genesis 3.13, when God is interrogating Eve, the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. With the sin or the error known, the curse can be handed down. And so Noah said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Now why Canaan? and not Ham himself. Jonathan Sarfati explains, since Ham sinned as the youngest son, he would be punished with a curse on his own youngest son. Because Ham had received God's blessing already in 9.1, the curse must be on his offspring, which would punish Ham. Noah is not here cursing someone that God has given a blessing. That God has given him a blessing and told him to go and populate the whole earth. This is still going to be on Ham, and we'll still see that three of Ham's sons do go on to populate the earth to a great degree. In fact, Ham's lineage stretches further over the globe than any of the other sons. They are also the first settlers on many of the places around the globe after the dispersion of Babel. But it was an act of mercy that only one of Ham's sons was affected and not all of them. Noah discerned that the evil that had appeared in Ham had developed to a greater degree in Canaan and would continue to increase through his descendants. Now when Noah handed down this curse, this prophetic curse, he wasn't making Canaan act a certain way. He wasn't making Ham's descendants act a certain way. He was describing their bent towards rebellion and as the father, so the son will be. He is observing and receives divine insight through this prophetic word of what the course of history would be for Ham's line, especially through his son, Canaan, who seems to be of a similar character to Ham. Then it says that Canaan, specifically, will be a servant of servants. This is a superlative, meaning the lowest of servants. He shall be a servant of servants to his brothers. Now this would be particularly important to the first audience of Genesis, those who received it in the wilderness from Moses because their task was to go into the land of Canaan and purge the evil that had sprouted there in that land. Just like God sent a flood to get rid of the wickedness of Cain's progeny, so he sends Israel, his peculiar people, his unique and special nation, to take care of the sin problem that was festering in Canaan. And so when he hands down a divine right to the land of Canaan, he also explains 
that it's not yet time for them to go into the land because the sins of these people have not yet been filled. And so he says, on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, he said to your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Raphaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. All of these lands went to the sons of Abraham. Now in Genesis 10:15, we see that these are all Canaanite tribes. Canaan, it says, became the father of Sidon, his firstborn and Het. And the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Archite and the Sinite and the Arvidite, the Zamorite, the Hamathite, and afterward the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. And the territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as, as you go down toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. All of these people that spread out after the Tower of Babel, these sons of Canaan stuck around the closest, and they festered in their sin. And eventually, the Israelites were sent in, and they conquered these people, but they did not succeed in fully conquering them. They made some ungodly covenants. They did not conquer lands they were called on to conquer. And so some of their people were left. Some of these Canaanites were not destroyed. Some were not wiped out. And so in 1 Kings chapter 9, when Solomon is taking full control here of the kingdom, we see that some of these are still left that have not been conquered and have not been eradicated, and he subjects them as servants and slaves, fulfilling this prom uh, prophecy of Noah. It says, as for all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the sons of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the sons of Israel were unable to destroy utterly. From them, Solomon levied forced labor laborers even to this day. Deuteronomy was the last book given to these sons of Israel before they entered into the promised land. And Deuteronomy is particularly concerned with making sure that they are not going to take up the sins and the errors of these Canaanite peoples. And in it, and also in the book of Leviticus, we see detailed some of these sins that grew out of this first sin of Ham. In Deuteronomy 12, it says, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them. After they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? that I also may do likewise. Now you guys are all familiar with the chief god of the Canaanites, which is Baal. This became a particular snare for Israel. You shall not behave thus towards the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates, 
they have done for their gods. They have even burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Deuteronomy 20 picks up again. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. It sounds a lot like flood language. You shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. This is the major theme of all of the major prophets. They act as prosecuting attorneys against Israel who have transgressed their covenants with God. They have fallen into the abominable acts of the Canaanites. And for this, they come under judgment, but they are never dispossessed from their land. They are moved out of their land for certain generations, but they do not lose their right to that land. Jeremiah 32 tells us of one of these dispersions, a dispersion into Babylon. It says, They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, which I had not commanded, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And because of this sin, now therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hands of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Now Babylon is a Hamite kingdom. In fact, it was the last great Hamite kingdom. Albright says on this, the Canaanites with their orgiastic nature worship, their cult of fertility in the form of serpent symbols and sensuous nudity and their gross mythology were replaced by Israel with its nomadic simplicity and purity of life, its lofty monotheism and its severe code of ethics. This was what God intended. In fact, this is to a large degree what happened, but they did not succeed in fully obeying God. They did not succeed in fully purging these people from their midst, and so that became a stumbling to them. The defeat of Carthage in 146 BC was the defeat of the last major Hamite civilization. And Plutarch writing of these Carthaginians Carthaginians, yeah, that sounds better. These Carthaginians says that essentially not much has changed since the days of Ham. So Plutarch in his book Moralia says, with full knowledge and understanding, the Carthaginians offered up their own children. And those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs or young birds. The Romans came in and conquered 
Carthage. And thank goodness that they did. Rome was not necessarily the greatest kingdom morally, but we are thankful that they came and conquered such a despicable culture. Now, when we look at the world powers that have dominated the earth in this civilization from the flood up until now, we see something very interesting. Israel has been a dominant world power under Solomon, but these world powers besides Israel have been Babel, a Hamite culture, Egypt, a Hamite culture, Assyria of Ham, Babylon of Ham, and the Hamite cultures finally fell to King Cyrus in the fall of Babylon, the first Japhetic king or ruler over the world. This was a ruler from Persia, and then Greece and Rome, two Japhetic kingdoms. These are the rulers during what Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles extend up until the return of the Messiah. In Luke 21, we read, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, speaking of the time of Jacob's trouble, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem, Israel, would not rise to be a world power again until Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would sit on the throne. Until then, the Japhethites would sit on the throne of world power, and they did. And now God prophesies through Noah concerning Shem. But notice this blessing. It does not say, blessed be Shem. It says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. This is a blessing and recognition of God in his sovereignty and in his covenant making with his people. Both names of God are used here in this text. Jehovah in the first and Elohim in the second. His creator, his sovereignty name, and Jehovah his covenant name with his people. And Shem would be his covenant people. Through Shem would be fulfilled the promise of a Messiah. This is a very similar format as well to how God speaks, or how Moses speaks of God. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. So back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, God is the God of Shem, the same way as we speak of him today as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the covenant God, and Shem becomes the next great patriarch in the line of Messiah. Through him, 
all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But Canaan would also serve him as a servant. And so he does. In the reign of Solomon, Canaan serves Solomon as forced laborers. Now concerning Japheth. There's a play on words here. Japheth's name is similar to the word enlarge. This probably does not mean enlarging his descendants numerically. Ham and Shem both have numerically larger descendants. But it probably does have something to do with the dominating power that the Japhethites have had in the greater period of Gentile power. Nevertheless, they are to dwell in the tents of Shem. They will rule over Jerusalem and Israel for much of, the, of this current civilization, especially since Solomon. It would be taken from the Hamites and handed to the Jebusites or to the uh, Japhethites. And even today, though Israel has sovereignty over their land, it seems the Japhethites, more than anyone else, seem to be seeking to gain control over it. And Canaan will also be their servant. Now, what does it mean, though, that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem? This is probably more a spiritual sense than a physical sense. The Japhetic cultures, being most of Europe, has been predominantly influenced by the Judeo-Christian ethic, Judeo-Christian religion, especially Christianity. In Genesis 12:3, we see this blessing promised all the way from the beginning that those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. This coming on the heels of God promising land, seed, and blessing to Israel. The land and the seed, the physical promises, will remain with Israel. This blessing promise will extend to the Gentiles, and it will extend to the Hamites as well. But the Hamites, to a large degree, have not taken advantage of this in the same way as the Japhethites have, where they could be described as dwelling in the tents of Shem. It is still Shem's tent. We have come under this covering. Ephesians 2 speaks of this, how we have come under to such a degree through the blood of Christ that we are one people with the believers in Christ from Israel. And so Paul says, therefore, remember that you, or that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so it is at the cross that this is fulfilled, this prophecy of Noah, 
that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. We have two verses that dangle on the end of this. Once again, an inclusio, but it goes back a little further. Oops. Genesis 9, 28 and 29 say, Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now this sounds pretty familiar, especially if you were here in the winter, where we spent quite a few Sundays looking at Genesis chapter 5 and all those descendants from Seth down to Noah. If you remember, Noah only got half a genealogy. We saw how many years he had lived before he became a father. We saw him becoming a father, but we didn't see how long he lived after that. It cut off. This is the second half of his genealogy. This completes the genealogies of chapter 5. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Hem, and Japheth. And then we got this three-chapter interlude of the flood. And now we finally come back to Genesis chapter 5 and finish the thought. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Our takeaway from this is that cancer or the sin the, the cancer of sin will remain on this earth from Noah until the end of this civilization from the flood to the flames sin remains god will work in sinful people to bring about his will and he will have victory over sin and he did at the cross john 16:33 says these things i have spoken to you this is jesus speaking so that in me you may have peace in the world, you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And John, writing about five years later, writes this to his congregation in Ephesus. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Nothing more, nothing less. Our faith gives us victory over the world because Jesus has had victory over the world and we enter into Jesus through faith alone plus nothing. And so who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? None. None besides the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let us pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for the gift of your Son, who is the fulfillment of many prophecies and will be still the fulfillment of all prophecies. We thank you so much that we have this wonderful hope to look forward to of the end of this civilization where Jesus Christ will take the throne and merge with your Father, with the Father on his throne. We thank you so much for this glorious hope that we have today, that even today we can live as saved believers, knowing that we are eternally secure in the blood of Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.